Hi everybody, before we begin I thought I'd just let you know that because this episode is about architecture in movies and film, there could be potential spoiler alerts. I do not think that we do provide any spoilers, however we do provide some plots in the storyline. So hopefully that is enough of a warning and enjoy this episode. Podcast. I'm your host Kimberly Hoy, the millennial who finds interest in architecture's relationship with anything and everything. And today I have my friend Adrian Fernandez with me. Hi guys, how are you going? <laughs> Hi Adrian, thank you for joining me during these hectic times. This is probably my third trial at doing remote recording and it's been a lot of adventures. Before we start and go off into our topic for today, Adrian, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh yeah, I'll introduce myself briefly. So I'm, I studied with Kim at Monash Art Design and Architecture. We did our master's together. We both graduated in 2018. I worked at a couple of small firms, large firms during that time and found myself sort of pivoting towards film as a sort of another key interest of mine. And through a couple of tutors at Monash, I got a job at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, where I helped coordinate their exhibitions, both internally and partnering with other sort of uh, cultural institutions in Australia and around the world. I also teach at the VCA in film theory, and I'm doing a master's at the VCA also, again, in sort of critical film analysis and film theory. And I teach at Monash also, so I think that's, that's me, yeah. That's a really impressive resume you've got there, especially just to be able to teach and then study at the same time. I think a lot of my friends would be wondering how to be able to juggle that. <laughs> It's definitely a uh, struggle a lot of times. It's, it takes up a lot of your time. You don't really have much time to do anything else. But, I mean, if you want to do it, yeah, you just sort of have to make some sacrifices along the way. Yeah, that's great. So the reason why I have you here today is evidently because of your background knowledge with film so far or, like, uh, what you have been studying with film and all. One of the main reasons that I was enticed into studying architecture was because when I was in high school, I was actually watching a school play. So at this point, I was starting to consider architecture as my degree. And then I was watching um, my high school play and I saw how happy the audience's reactions were towards like the stage and such. And I thought, I think I want to do that. And I want to be able to put out the same type of emotions or have audience react in a similar manner and such. And so when I was at Monash Open Day, I think one of the reasons why I got sucked into architecture at that point, I was deciding between interior or architecture. One of the ladies who spoke to me said, well, if you do architecture, you can do anything. And then if you do stage, you can influence costumes and such. And after hearing that, I think that changed my whole perspective in observing film. Um, not just film even, it's just even from film, stage, television, documentaries, music videos, and even ads. Uh, those things always make a huge impact. So I guess that's the opening point. And my question is, what got you into the film side of things while you were studying architecture? Or did you start becoming interested in film after architecture happened? No, I think it was just a purely coincidence. I did a an elective at, in my during my fourth year, so first year of master's, which is sort of just a general sort of film history subjects it was like a second year subject mm. I just found myself greatly interested and I really sort of enjoyed the class and I think finding those parallels between sort of the, the world building that you do in architecture and the world building that's required in film and that's sort of the common thing that architecture allows us to do is sort of build worlds and build these ideas and sort of formulate 
storylines and narratives through sort of building design, mm. uh, which is something that's sort of also a key component in film. So it was just sort of through that elective, I got to know the tutor quite well and sort of we had discussions and um, around film and sort of architecture sort of uh, role in sort of filmmaking. And I just sort of got involved in some projects that he was working on, the Melbourne Cinematheque, which is sort of a volunteer film organisation, so I helped out there. And then just through that, I sort of got to know people within that sort of world of um, filmmaking, sort of the film production side of things, and that was it really. I mean, and it also sort of coincided with my sort of declining interest in the practice of architecture, like the practical side. I was sort of more interested in the, the praxis and the theoretical side of architecture, particularly the educational side. Um, and the actual sort of practice of architecture I was sort of moving away from. So I think it was sort of nice, nice sort of parallel lines where like my interest in film was increasing as my interest in the practice of architecture was decreasing. So I sort of pivoted through that. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay, so that's quite interesting. Is there something like, is it because of like the process in the film industry in comparison to how the process of like actual professional practice that influenced your thinking of like your declining interest as well or was it just like a gradual thing of just realizing that you just liked more than one than the other I think it was a bit of both I think it was just working working actually in a practice Mm. sort of just seeing the reality of the day-to-day life of an architect it was just something I wasn't interested in at the time and still I'm not interested in at the moment like Mm. I'll probably will come back to it later on in my life I mean who knows but I think just that that day-to-day quite repetitive where you're just sort of working on drawings and sort of producing documentation sets and all that stuff. It wasn't sort of my interest and I was also then quite lucky and fortunate that I had sort of Michael Vale, who's the tutor that I studied with and how he helped me sort of get into the um, Melbourne Cinematheque and all that. He was sort of providing me those opportunities to sort of pursue sort of other interests and sort of that side of things was also this interesting me more and I thought, well, I mean... I may as well try it out because, like, this is the probably the best opportunity I'll have because really not many. I don't have many commitments beyond sort of myself, so I thought I may as well try it out. And if I doesn't, if I don't like it, then I can always sort of try architecture again. But so far, so good. I think because like there's that whole glamorization of the architecture life that you often see depicted in films because. Um, in one of my early episodes I had with Nicole, both of us were discussing about how because architecture is such a visual type of profession and then given that there are lots of objects of association and also the stereotypes that in some ways I guess I wonder if when we went into architecture we had this glamour type illusion put in front of us but then it is only when we start going into like the practice and then um our elective professional practice and also technological and environments that kind of start breaking down those barriers and I think leaving us quite disillusioned from that type of area. Yeah, definitely. There's a massive disconnect between sort of the way you learn about architecture in a university setting versus what is the actual reality of architecture. So for most of us, particularly as sort of recent grads, you don't get the the university experience where you're sort of working in a project across all spectrums, you're totally controlled the design and the ideas and sort of the theoretical backing behind a project. When you sort of get into a practice setting, a lot of that's been decided for you or a lot of that's sort of been determined by higher ups. So you're only involved in the pure production of architecture, not the actual sort of uh, backing and thinking behind it, which is for me and I think for you and maybe a few others that you're talking about is sort of the more interesting side of architecture, the actual conceptual thinking behind it rather than the, the day-to-day grind of producing from those concepts. So I think that's sort of that disconnect that is such a problem in the university setting where they don't really teach you about the actual day-to-day life of an architect. 
it, it, it is quite glamorized and maybe it does come from movies and TVs where, I don't know, you sort of see the cliched example of like how I met your mother, where it's like <laughs> Ted Mosby is this sort of singular architect and he's producing skyscrapers seemingly by himself and he's, but he's, he's hanging out at a bar for like hours a day and that sort of that glamour, glamorized life of an architect and that idea of that the architect is sort of this singular entity that sort of produces and does everything themselves, often himself. It's often a male-dominated sort of idea of the architect as God, um, which is obviously just entirely wrong and pig-headed to sort of keep perpetuating that myth, but it is something that the profession still struggles to sort of break away from, particularly when it comes to sort of the general public's perception of what architecture is. It is often sort of uh, reinforced by movies and TVs where they sort of just use the cliches rather than actually sort of dissecting what an architect actually does, which is often just quite mundane tasks of documentation and like room layout sheets and that sort of stuff. Still important things to do, but obviously a lot less exciting than uh, than sketching on, on a drawing board for hours. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, it's just, it is a bit of a shame that sometimes it is kind of like what we see in film. Obviously the film and like the narrative will always, I guess, put a little bit of rose or coloured glass visions to it so then it keeps the narrative interesting and then tying on back to that type of film media thing I guess it goes back to how I remember when I first got into architecture like your statement about how the architect is the god or the equivalent to it it was because the way I saw film as a backdrop because you can have your characters and your settings of it but if you don't have your backdrop and your context because I think if you we don't create that context which is quite crucial to film, then we won't be able to understand the reason for the speaker's dialogues or um, the costuming or like even the technologies that were implicated in in those film narratives. And I wonder if you would agree with me on that or whether you have different opinions on who do you think comes first, the setting, or is it just the mindset of those characters within the narrative? I, I think I think there's it's like the chicken or the egg. There's nothing that comes first. I think a, a good movie, a really good movie and really good TV shows consider the setting and the characters par- parallel to each other. So, so they don't build the characters first and try and force them into a setting or vice versa. I think that the really good movies and the really good TV shows sort of consider the the setting or the, the, the world as a character unto itself. So, I mean, just sort of taking um, one of your examples, like the, the Grand Budapest Hotel, where the actual hotel becomes a character and sort of the, the rooms are, are closer to associated and defined by the characters, but the characters are also defined by the settings which they operate. So Gustav's sort of very sort of modest um, hotel room sort of conveys the true side of his character versus sort of the more lavish uh, lobby that he sort of often resides in. So that duality of his characters is is quite sort of smartly articulated through the two settings in which he occupies sort of his hotel room versus his sort of public face. And it's sort of, it, 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 there's a sort of recurring theme in that movie of sort of this duality of the, the backer house, which is sort of often the cog of the hotel versus the actual public face. And it's the idea that they have to exist without, they can't exist without each other. And often the characters can't exist without both of those things operating optimally. I think this to sort of briefly uh, answer your question, I think they, they, they have to go hand in hand. One can't exist without the other. Yeah, I think architecture becomes a character and that's when the really good movies start to shine. I would agree with you. The reason why, like, when I first saw Grand Budapest Hotel, it was interesting that the way they marketed the whole movie production well. Um, probably this is my ignorance because Wes Anderson, the world of Wes Anderson only came to my lens 
relatively late in comparison to other people but um if you see his art book on the grand budapest hotel the movie posters generally it was always the hotel first before we come to the character so the way he framed um it's not just even the architecture itself but it was also how architecture was worked into the compositions of the frames that i find that were quite integral so even um, most recently, one of the Korean dramas that I started watching, Hospital Playlist, turns out the directors were really known for their attention to detail that many of us would pass up by a blind eye. And so I guess it's similar to Wes Anderson. And then I remember making a comment to my friend about it the other day, but uh, Parasite, uh, the recent movie where at least this is the movie that was both on our list that said that architecture was portrayed well. And I think it was interesting that architecture was not just portrayed well in terms of the metaphors and analogies, but it was how the actors moved or each scene that you can tell that it's like, and the title even in itself just made sense in the way that why it was parasitic, them crawling under the table and crawling out of the table was parasitic and such. So I thought that was quite beautiful. Yeah, and even in that film, like you sort of get the sense that the camera is following the building rather than the characters. The characters sort of are subservient to the architecture. This idea of sort of the this um that this the the book or the the wine rack uh, uh hiding the, the back of house and this idea of sort of this underground labyrinth. It seems the camera is sort of dedicated to the actual circulation patterns of this of this house that they've sort of designed through this film, and the characters are sort of existing within the architecture rather than the architecture existing within the characters. And I think that's sort of a really good example of, yeah, where the, the architecture becomes sort of the dominant setting because most, most of that film is set within that very quite beautiful house. And it's sort of this, the, the way they've considered that the sequence of spaces, it's often, I think, that they have considered that spaces first and how the characters will flow through those spaces rather than, okay, the character goes from the kitchen to the living room or something and they design those spaces based off the needs of the characters. They really considered the house as a as a holistic sort of character unto itself, and then how then their human characters then interact with this sort of static character of the house. Even just the dialogue itself, actually, now that you mentioned it, the subservience of that type of role, it's mentioned in dialogue, like the architect was considering about the bombings, but then afterwards, because like how the generation, because war happened, and then when you have people just moving on, forgetting those events, but then what happens is that how people discover architecture just out of curiosity. I think Glenn, not Glenn Merkitt, but Sean Godsell um, in his dialogue with Glenn Merkitt where he says that us as designers, we often uncover the potentials of architecture, not really creating something, which I think was quite poetic and very confronting in that sense. And I think that film did a perfect job in saying that we as people sometimes when we are forced into a certain situation that we discover architecture or make use of something that was perhaps not designed with that type of intention. And I think that film did that, executed it really well too. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of his films, so Bong Joon-ho's films, sort of really use the architecture of South Korea and this idea of sort of, sort of social divide of South Korea is depicted through the architecture and through the settings that he's sort of operating in. He sort of, he tries to um, utilise the setting to sort of convey some of the messages and metaphors behind his film, particularly that sort of social strata that exists within South Korea, bringing sort of the, the rich and the poor into this idea that they are sort of competing against each other, even though they are existing in a sort of a democratic setting. 
it is quite sort of feudal, the system that he's trying to convey. We'll just branch on a little bit more Parasite before we go into other movies that I'd like to discuss. But um, have you heard of the recent talk, like after the huge success of it because of the Academy Awards and then just how it's been critically acclaimed when they said that they were having a talk about making it a television sequel and works, but then I think there was this huge panic of whether this is going to be, dare I say, whitewash. And it's that question of, I wonder if then... If it was going to be set in a Western culture setting, do you think that we will perceive the whole storyline completely different? Because I think that there is still this huge economical divide, not just in Korea, but South Korea, sorry. And then you've got it. It's happening everywhere in the world, essentially. But I wonder, will then change the way we see the message portrayed? I think it will. Cause I, think, I think part of Parasite's success in particularly North America was this idea that people who are watching it it was like they were watching something that they had no awareness of. Oh, yeah. They was like, it's in South Korea, so this class divide is, is particular to South Korea. It doesn't happen to anyone else. That's why I can enjoy it because it's something it's being depicted, something that I have no control and no influence over. Mm. It's if, and it's, it's what you're saying is correct, they are sort of looking at moving into maybe a North American setting. It might become a bit too close to comfort because it will start to depict some of the things that the uh, people in North America uh, living day to day, particularly so, and it is. I think it's worse in in a westernized country. Or South South Korea is a sort of a westernized country in North America, where it is often, particularly in California and other sort of eastern and west coast states, the divide between sort of the rich and poor is absolutely uh, stratospheric. And I think if that is depicted, it will become too close to comfort, and I think people will become uncomfortable, and so that the potency of the message might be lost because people will just ignore it, won't actually try and grapple because it's actually grappling with ideas that they are complicit in, rather than in South Korea, where it's like, oh, I have no influence over that, so I can enjoy that at a purely detached level. I would love to see what type of comments there are going to be because I follow so many pages, um, especially like the infamous subtle Asian traits. There's another one that I do enjoy following, although. I think his tone has mellowed over the years, um, the love life of an Asian guy. So they talked about Parasite a lot, but I think love life of an Asian guy actually pointed out like a lot of the, the political backlash that it might get just given the way if this television series is going to manifest to it. So I will be looking forward to see how that goes. But then I like to also imagine like Parasite is as you said, because people don't who don't know about the cultural context of it or the background context that's happening in South Korea, perhaps that hopefully they do see it as an allegory. Like it is a good story about morals and morals, I think, in a sense. So that is something for us to look forward to for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a universal universal message that uh Bong Jong Ho is trying to portray. Hmm. But I think people will detach themselves from that message because it is sort of particular, to, it is quite particular to sort of the South Korean sort of class setting and that sort of stuff, even though he's trying to uh, allude to the fact that it is sort of a worldwide issue. I think people will take it at face value and say, this is particular South Korea, so it's not happening in my backyard. But if they do transplant to North America or even Australia, I think it will become a lot more potent, but it will be a lot more likely to be just ignored. Yeah, that's a good point. Ah, anyhow, um, going back to like the architecture of film, do you have any other films works really well for you architecturally? Well, one of my favourite films is a film called In the Mood for Love. It's Wong Kar Wai, and I think just, just the way that the composition of architecture in that film is really, really beautiful. And it, it does sort of utilise, sort of set in Hong Kong in the 
sort of 50s and 60s as it was sort of becoming an independent, moving towards becoming an independent sort of nation state. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sort of depicts uh, two couples who find that they're having a f- their husbands and wives having an affair, so they sort of get to know each other through this illicit romance that's uh, existing and this sort of forbidden love that occurs between them. And I think the way they use that tension between the couples is sort of quite, is depicted quite well in the architecture. So they sort of use compressed sort of spaces and sort of very sort of, it's like you're always seeing things through a frame in that film. So it's like framing their lives through through a window or through, so you're an outsider looking in. And the city sort of the architecture sort of being a key component in that depiction, the composition of their lives is being composed through the architecture. Mm. So I think that's sort of quite a, a beautiful way of sort of using where it becomes sort of a, more than just a setting, but a way to sort of see the film holistically. Because it, it requires an understanding of the framing, sort of framing their, this sort of key moment in their relationship. Or, or the alleyway they're walking through and the, and the way they sort of brush shoulders, that sort of that chemistry that is that illicit chemistry that's existing is sort of is being elucidated by the compressed space that the director is sort of forced them to go down. I think this overall, it, and, and this sort of a purely sort of aesthetic level, it is this sort of a beautiful film to watch. And I think a lot of that comes through just the way the settings that Wong Kar Wai has uh, utilised and the way he's utilised them beyond this sort of... The, the allegorical messages, the sort of the the, the surface level beauty of the film, is through the architecture and through the sort of settings. Yeah. Oh wow! I I don't know. I feel a bit embarrassed because I am from Hong Kong and I still have not seen that film yet. I do know In the Mood for Love is like a treasure. It's one of the pinnacle films that I think set those two couple into the stardom as well. I might be wrong in this, and um. I think, yeah, just given the way you even described the scenes, I could just already picture it, just um, that sense of nostalgia. And then um, mm. it's those techniques that make architecture so important to understand a narrative, which I find is quite nice as well. Having said, like, the window frames, one of the movies I would love to see one day is Alfred Hitchcock's The Rear Window because it talks about um, the... It's the voyeurism, but done in a very sync tunnel visioned way because I say tunnel vision mainly because of the telescope that he always looks through to observe the neighbors and it kind of makes me wonder like when the audience are seeing the film obviously they might not think about the architecture unless like they also study architecture and then that consumes them obviously but then I wonder how would they feel like just by being frame by frame realizing that they're just kind of intruding in terms of those types of intimate settings that you would see yeah well i think in a movie like re window architecture sort of it, it emphasizes you know, that architecture is the backdrop to all our lives like none of us go through our day-to-day lives without being influenced by architecture or the built environment in some way i think re window sort of really does that really well particularly in this opening scene where this is not spoiling anything for you, Kim, where it, <laughs> it, it just sort of pans through sort of this alleyway that Cary Grant's character, I can't remember his name in the film, is is living in and sort of the, the rear window that he sort of faces onto, faces onto an alleyway. And it pans through all the backyard and windows that he will eventually be looking through and it sort of starts to give hints at the, what each of sort of the characters that live within those uh, respective houses, their lives are leading. And it's this quite a beautiful shot where it is sort of, it's a single take that pans through the other way, I think that really sort of sets up this idea that you will be experiencing architecture and the lives that exist within the architecture are almost secondary to sort of the, the setting which they occupy. And, yet, and it is sort of evident throughout the film because it becomes often that you don't actually see or hear 
what the characters are saying when he's spying on those characters. You only see their movements and their movements through the space. Mm. So you see the tension, you see the chemistry that exists within these sort of respective settings that he's, occu- uh, he's uh, peering into. And then it's sort of the way he's uh, Hitchcock and whoever the set designers were built their respective environments to sort of uh, illustrate this couple is in romantic strife, but this couple is, is falling in love with each other and there's something going on that's a bit shady in this house. And it's often depicted through the settings that they occupy because you don't actually hear what they're saying. Yeah, that's a good point. So, like, as architecture is a backdrop, I think one of the films, now that I think about it, that I don't think architecture was very important, but rather as a placeholder, I think, for the characters was the artist. So it was one of the newest or modern take on silent films that also was in the Academy Awards ages ago but I remember I used to just love watching it it was because it was I was only focused on the actors themselves just um and then you have to kind of guess their dialogues as you go but it was just their movements and then the flow of sequence that made more sense rather than me thinking about architecture so in that sense then architecture was just simply a backdrop but not really the pinnacle storyline for it either. Uh, I think sort of in that movie in particular architecture is almost a a way to convey the sort of the broader messages and sort of metaphors that Vernicus I think is the director's Mm. name was trying to convey this sort of Hollywood the advancement of Hollywood transitioning from silent films to talkies, which is what they were called back then, and how sort of the the architecture of Hollywood and the architecture of the respective characters. So the silent actor, I can't remember his name, and his love interest, uh, the respective houses they end up occupying. So there's this particular idea of sort of she occupies a modernist house where he occupies sort of this grand old Victorian mansion, and it's quite decrepit and quite foreboding where she lives in this sort of very sleek, very sort of quite generic, but that was the future of Hollywood. And uses that architecture to sort of maybe reinforce those measures of the tension that exists at the time. We still exist within the Hollywood setting of this uh, individuality that they try to convey in Hollywood, sort of the, the, the generic machine that it was becoming and has become. That it just pumps out hundreds of movies a year and there's sort of no hint that the individual within that, become, uh, you just become a cog in the machine. That was, that, that was what they were trying to, I think, convey within that film with the architecture. Mm, good insight. I think I'll have to definitely rewatch that film and see whether the architecture will speak to me out loud <laughs> a little bit more eventually. Do you have any um, architecture films that have been held as like really well depicted or really well used but didn't work for you as much? Because I think given this whole remote like situation, COVID-19, you now see articles it's like, architecture films you should watch from fans, architects recommending these movies. Do you have some that you would agree with? their recommendations or you just think that no not not really in that sense um i think this is sort of a very cliche example like inception as a movie i think is architecture successful and that is sort of trying to convey or push the experimentation that might exist within architecture but the actual sort of movie and the plot motivation particularly becomes a bit sort of convoluted and just like it's almost like it, it's layers upon layers upon layers, and it gets to the point where it's just trying to be too smart for its own good, uh, particularly in sort of the final third of the movie. But the actual sort of architecture, the way it sort of conveys some of those motivations of its characters, I think works quite well. And it is Christian Nolan, I think, in all his movies, uses architecture to really sort of convey this new sort of it is pushing the extremes and it is, he is experimenting with different representational techniques. And I think I think it's also just the fact that it is, it is such a cliched example now of, of a film like 
top 10 songs ever out that you see Inception will always be sort of within that right list. <laughs> you see it so often, you sort of tend, you just inevitably start to hate it because you see it all the time in this list. So maybe it is sort of a bit of that hate that is sort of surface or superficial hate. But I think beyond the architecture of that film, I think there are sort of a lot of, I think a lot of his films maybe tend to sort of become a bit too self-indulgent. It's an interesting sort of tangent, sort of listening to a, a lecture that Steven Soderbergh was giving and he was sort of describing the difference between sort of movies and cinema. Sort of movies are sort of more genre pieces where there's so no sort of political motivations or personal motivation behind the film. It's just trying to tell a story and he sort of gave the example of Avengers as a good movie where there's sort of no per- political or personal motivation behind that film. And a piece of cinema is something where the director is uh, embedding something of themselves within that film. And he describes Christopher Nolan's films are all cinema because a piece of him was in that film. And I think what he tends to do is he tends to put too much of himself in that film. So it becomes about his own qualms and, and hang-ups about film and about his personal life. And I think it becomes a bit too obvious. And I think it starts to overshadow some of the more successful things he does quite well, which is sort of the overall world-building. I think that a lot of that comes to, I think, Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan, which are his collaborators, and they sort of do a lot of the the set design behind those films so maybe it's their work that we should be looking at rather than sort of Christopher Nolan's which is often sort of the weaker aspects of his film but yeah I don't know do you have any films um I think yeah Inception is the one that I would say because I feel like it's gone to a point where it's amazing the but I think it's the special effects that they constantly use and apply to it that just made me lost the film essentially but um so I think in that case I started watching this film when it was in the cinemas and at that point I don't think architecture really came into my life but now that I think about it all I can remember is just there it's just focusing on the characters like desperately running away like running into or running away from the architecture and then this was so many years ago so I don't have full recollection of it but then having said like looking at some of the list of recommendations I think the reason why I have, guiltily speaking, I haven't watched, I don't think I've watched that many or any of the ones that has been mentioned on the list, probably because it's the genre of the film that hasn't peaked to my taste. So Ex Machina, I was recommended that film, but personally it was just knowing the storyline of it, that made me a little bit nervous because um, kind of understanding the whole premise and plot kind of deterred me <laughs> away from wanting to watch it. Although I think some films I wouldn't say that it wasn't architecturally successful or whatnot but I think it's architecture being used as symbols that has been overly done so I think going back to Parasite again sorry everybody who's listening to this but um there's Parasite the constant use of stairs at the start it made sense but I think eventually it made more sense why they had to constantly use it but I think some films that constantly use the stairs up and up and down like you know crazy rich Asians especially that scene where there was that confrontation between Rachel and Eleanor and I think that part where I can see why it had to be set there but I felt like it didn't need to be set there to get the message across so that's like one of them so I think stairs yeah to me is always like that and then um, using doors or even just using maze to depict the message across in terms of architecture I feel like that has been exhausted or overly exhausted but having said I can't really argue much if for example the maze had to be used because it was the premise of the book so like Hunger Games um, Maze Runner they were critical but at the same time I think 
if you kind of hammer it onto the point, I think I just I don't think it's successful anymore in the way to depict a message. Yeah, yeah, I think those sort of tropes of cinema and architecture, like you sort of the stare, sort of big sort of social class divide, have been used so many times that it's really hard to sort of use them in any any unique way. So it often becomes a default. But there's sort of a couple of points I want to sort of go back to. You sort of mentioned Inception, this sort of the special effects. I think that's an interesting point because it often, what often is an unsuccessful film for me architecturally is when the special effects start to override the film. So I think film today, the idea of CGI and green screen has become the dominant form production of film and that it's often become too much of an easy crutch to rely on CGI to sort of fix more sort of uh, fatal forces in the film. I think architecture then becomes a victim of that because they use the world but integrates with these very elaborate worlds that can be easily, not easily, but sort of quite uh, well designed through CGI. And they use that to hide some of the, the more sort of obvious flaws and more sort of fatal flaws of the film. I think that's something that becomes a bit of a bugbear because I think a lot, and it is a lot of sort of really big budget genre pieces that sort of tend to do that where the actual storyline is quite, quite flimsy. But the special effects, the visual effects, they use that to distract people. I think that's fine, but it's often just like it's been done so many times that you'd be getting a bit tired of that. Whereas in a movie like, say, In the Mood for Love or like uh, Columbus, which is sort of another movie that I would recommend because it's quite a, it's, they use the architecture and they use sort of, there's no visual effects in that film, but they use the architecture to really sort of move the film along. And the plot is sort of driven by the architecture and the spaces they experience and the conversations that result from the, experiences they're having so when it becomes much more naturalized that's when i that's for me personally a film that i can enjoy a lot more when it's a more naturalized sort of way of depicting architecture rather than sort of forcing it on you because hey i know how to use i don't know some some visual effects software like oh, who knows like Vectorworks or something some crazy software that i i've spent three years so i can build a crazy world that can hide hide my shoddy storyline and just coming back i think again something you also mentioned when he mentioned sort of Ex Machina, it's interesting because I actually really enjoyed that film. And it's always, I think, I think it becomes down to the, you sort of mentioned that the plot and the sort of the messages that Alex Garland were trying to convey was something that you were sort of maybe a bit uncomfortable with or unaware of. And I think directors like Alex Garland and others of his elk, they tend to use their own sort of political leanings to really drive the plot of a film. And unless you're intimately aware of the broader message that he's trying to convey, which is sort of the danger of the tech and the ideas of sort of sentience within technology and what sort of the implications that may be. If you aren't aware of that or aren't interested in that at all, his films just become almost pointless to you. And they're not enjoyable because they often, he uses that to drive everything. So the performances, the set, the setting, the sound design, the lighting, everything is driven by to convey this message he's trying to sort of talk about, which is something I quite enjoy. It's a broader message than thematics that sort of drive some of those films. But I think if you aren't aware of it, then it is much harder to access. And that is often sort of a weakness of the sort of very singular filmmakers in that they lose a lot of their potential audience because they aren't willing to give up any sense of agency over their films. And they, it then ties in an interesting parallel, to, uh, some of the conversation we're having at the start of the discussion where the architect is God, the filmmaker is often just as depicted as being this sort of single entity. The director is a singular, the singular vision that sort of controls everything. Whereas the reality is, filmmaking is much more collaborative than even architecture. It's hundreds, if not thousands, of people involved in the, in the success of production of a film. The director is quite a small cog in that machine. 
their role is depicted as much more bigger than it, it actually is. So when directors like Alex Island, they sort of tend to try and take on much more than they probably should. It often, <laughs> it often then becomes a, a vehicle to sort of for them to sort of convey their own personal ideologies. Back then when I was talking to my friend, like we used to watch movies, but then it got to a point of after one day she told me that she'd rather sit through a movie till the end of the credits purely as a sign of respect for those who are also in the production team. And I think if it hadn't been for that comment, I wouldn't have started doing that as well. So like whenever I go to cinemas, I just try and sit through the whole credit scene because everybody makes a huge impact to the film like I want to understand the sound like holding different mics and cameras and such and I feel that while I guess those people they are happy to be able to contribute to such a wonderful project but at the same time it would be nice if we could also push them into having better recognition like push them into a better light other than just like seeing the directors even sometimes when I'm citing movies or films uh, whenever I'm writing my research, I just feel a little bit apologetic by just saying who it's being directed by. I don't know, should I write like who's the product, um, the producer, or even like who writes the film? Because it is an ensemble at the end of the day. It's not just a one-man team, as you say. I think sort of a key person that is underappreciated is the cinematographer in a film, because they are the ones that are actually working out how the shots are going to be composed and how the settings going to be used to sort of convey. The, the, the plot and the messages of the film, whereas the directors is sort of making sure it actually takes place. So they're the ones calling action, and if it start, if uh, actor stuff's up, they call cut. So the director is it was almost just a symbolic figurehead where the cinematographer has much more influence over the, the end result of the film. I think if there's any, I think you're right, everyone involved in the film deserves much more recognition, particularly sort of the lighting, sound design, uh, production design, costume design, because that that's what builds the world that we that we occupy. And, and if there's something that doesn't work in the in say costume setting, costume design, then that sort of illusion of world of immersive world building breaks, and suddenly the film it doesn't work anymore. But I think so they all deserve recognition. But I think the cinematographer in particular deserves a lot more recognition to be on par, if not exceeding the director in terms of how much importance we place on their roles in the world of filmmaking mm, yeah there's an article um on the age 19 about 1917 i haven't seen the movie but um and i still need to read the article it's somewhere in my room <laughs> but i still need to i want to read more about how they've edited it because apparently it got really well recognition mainly because of how it was filmed like almost mimicking it's a one take yeah. type of shot and a lot of that comes down to Roger Deakins, who's a cinematographer on that film, him meticulously working out the moments where he can cut and blend it together to make a scene if this is sort of one take. And I think him in particular, like he's he's an incredible cinematographer. He did sort of Blade Runner 2049. He's done, he, he's worked a lot with sort of Ridley Scott and all that. He's been nominated for, I think, 20-something Oscars. He's won a couple. I think a lot of his work, you'll find that He's worked on lots sort of the, the best films of the past sort of 20 or 30 years. And a lot of those films, their, their recognition often comes from the fact that he has worked on it. And the work he's put into it has often driven the success of those films. So having said, now that you are having, I don't know how far submerged you are within the film industry, do you see yourself being like, I guess, one of the roles? So like set designer, cinematographer, director, what would... Do you have a particular role that you are interested in? 
not particularly at the moment. I'm sort of more interested in the, the theoretical side of film and sort of the, the critical practice of filmmaking rather than the actual practical side of filmmaking. Maybe it's just a crux. It's like an easy way out. But, I mean, I think the value of architecture, the what we learned in architecture school is that we can apply our skills to sort of many different professions. So we can become set designers. So we understand because a lot of what, arch- what film and sort of TV and music videos are, it's world building. That's the end of it. It's building a world that the audience can occupy and occupy without sort of being made aware that they are living, that they are occupying a constructed world that is often the result of a singular person or a group of people sort of trying to convey a particular idea. And I think architects do that quite well because we are all about sort of building worlds and building urban design and sort of building cities and building sort of spaces that people can occupy and not occupy just passively, but occupy subjectively. So they occupy and then they take control of the space. Then we provide the mechanisms that allow people to sort of occupy and take control of a space. And it's the same thing as filmmaking. You have to allow people to sort of occupy the film and convey their own ideas and, and their own sort of personal experiences onto the film. And that then starts to find their enjoyment of the film when they can start to really sort of do that quite well. And a lot of the best films do that really well. So we can, architects have the particular skill set to be able to play a role in that. So I think in any sort of format of the film side of production, we can play a role in. But particularly sort of looking at sort of set design and uh, production design, cinematography. Yeah. So to sort of answer your question in a very roundabout way, I don't see myself... At the moment, moving into sort of the production side of film, if if anything, maybe like screenwriting, because I do enjoy sort of short, the idea of sort of narrative building in architecture, so maybe the narrative building of film, there's sort of maybe a closer parallel that exists there. But yeah, at the moment, I, I'm content to just sort of sit within the critical theory of film and try and occupy my time there. Yeah, that is great. I'm looking forward to seeing where this exploration of the critical film theory will take you, given that... It's been so long since I've studied something like this. The last time I did was BCE, and that was seven years ago. (laughs) Oh my gosh, how time flies. Anyhow, do you have any closing comments you'd like to say, Adrian? Or do you have anything you'd want to ask before we wrap it up? Uh, No, I think think what I just said is sort of architecture is a skill that allows us to sort of occupy many different avenues and many different sort of streams of working, particularly in sort of the creative industries and sort of filmmaking in particular. We do have a, a unique insight into how to build worlds and how to build sets and build spaces that people can occupy and in, in, inhibit with their own ideas. So I think, yeah, I think there is a lot of potential there. I think it is often just being a bit more critical of the films that you're watching particularly in terms of the spaces that are creating. I think a lot of the lessons, particularly as students, you can learn within architecture, you can learn within film also, and it's often a much more accessible way of sort of learning the sort of fundamental ideas of architecture. You can learn them through film. So, yeah, I think just keep watching films and be, be more aware of the spaces that are creating and how they're trying to convey particular moods or ideas through the spaces rather than just sort of focusing on the dialogue as a sort of main repository of that um of the ideas lovely thank you um well i'll definitely get the list of films and also the directors and cinematographers that you've mentioned early in the discussion and then yeah we'll share it with everybody in the notes and uh yeah thank you so much adrian thank you for joining me today i'm really really happy to have you here and hopefully i can have you back on again so we can perhaps explore another avenue of film in architecture even digital animation 
if you don't mind discussing about that. Yeah, well, I think like animation is is this much more potential to sort of explore the influence architecture because that is sort of you're building the world from scratch. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, um, thanks, thanks for having me, Kim. It was a pleasure to be involved in The Archimist. Um, <laughs> it's really nice well thank you so much for listening everybody and uh, we'll be back again for another episode as I always try to have two episodes within a month but as always please subscribe so we do get noticed by other designers or people who are interested in architecture and yeah leave us a comment if you've got any suggestions you'd like us to talk about and we'll see you another time bye